about your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And how it's so important that our faith be a working faith and that we challenge that every day in our lives. Last time we talked about James chapter 3 where he moves into a conversation about, about the tongue and our speech and the ways that we use our speech as Christians and how it can be such a, a troublemaker for us in our lives. And our tongue causes us so much trouble in many times the things that we say and do. And we talked about how the signs of a maturing faith are evident in our tongue and how we use our speech and the things that we talk about and the way that we react to people and the things that we say. And how important it is as we mature as Christians that we become skillful in the use of that. And how he said it can never be tamed by any man. But as we learn about God and his wisdom and ask God for wisdom, those are the ways that we can uh, use and the tools that we can use to help control our tongue. And so that brings us to chapter 4, James chapter 4. As I've been continuing to study this book, I, you know, we, we've, we talked previously about how there's so much practical advice in the book of James and how you can find all these little nuggets of everyday wisdom that you can use as you live your life and how it can make you a better Christian. And as I continue to study this book, I, I think I've recognized even more with each chapter how it's such a challenging book. The concepts presented in the book are not difficult. They're pretty easy to understand. We, we talked about it being likened to Proverbs of the New Testament. There's, there's little pieces of advice you can go to and find these nuggets of information, but every one of them is something that challenges you as a Christian. And as you read through the book, if, you're, if you don't feel challenged, I sort of feel like there's a gap there. There's something missing. You should feel challenged as you read this, and chapter 4 is no different. I was thinking about the concepts presented here and how they all tie together, and it got me think, thinking about calibration or calibrating something. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is calibrating your faith. You know, we had a problem with Tara's vehicle here a while back where uh, you would get up to about 55, 60 miles an hour, and then the steering wheel would just start shaking really bad. It's like, what in the world's going on with this thing? You thought, okay, maybe it's a needs an alignment or something's going on, the tires are bad. So you check the tires. No, they look pretty good. I'm rotating them regularly. Took it in for an oil change. Said, hey, can you guys check the alignment out too? It's been acting kind of goofy. Yeah, the alignment's fine. Can't figure it out. Finally take it in and they figure out the tires need balancing. So they, they stick them on this machine that does all the diagnostics that it needs to do and they say, okay, it's a little out of balance at a certain spot. And they put these little bitty chunks of metal on it that are weights that, that balance out the tire. You know, and I was thinking about that and how fascinating is it just something that weighs just such a few ounces can make such a big difference. And so they went in and balanced the tires, and what do you know? You get up to 70 miles an hour, and the thing's driving like it's supposed to. And I was thinking about James chapter 4. I was thinking about mechanical things and stuff like that as it goes wrong and how you know, sometimes we, we get all out of whack as Christians, and sometimes it's something very simple needs tweaking, right? You just need to balance the tires. Maybe sometimes it is the front end alignment. Maybe sometimes you bent the axle or whatever, right? And that's what we want to talk about today. How do we make sure that we're calibrating or recalibrating our faith in our daily walk with Christ? And he talks about that. And he starts with a challenging question, really, in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Think about all the things that he's just spoken about leading up to this, the taming of the tongue chapter. Where do, you, where do your problems come from at the end of the day? It's a very interesting question, and it's one we could probably spend the whole time just on the question, right? Where do our problems come from in life? Think about all the various things that cause you trouble on a daily basis, and what are those? And we think of all those reasons, and I wonder how many, as you're thinking about that question, point back to yourself. And he immediately answers it, and he said, is it not 
this, that your passions are at war within you. See, at the end of the day, the cause of all of our conflict is ourselves and our own sinful desires and our own sinful lust and the things that we want to do. We can trace every problem that we have back to that. We talked about the tongue last time and how it's so symptomatic of that. But think about even when we misuse the tongue, it's a result of our own sinful thoughts and desires. We answer somebody out of a selfish desire. We respond out of hate because it's not, something's not the way we like it to be. And even when we misuse our tongue, it's reflective of this. So I think if you get nothing else out of the study today, but understanding the, the, the point that all of our troubles root back to our own sinful desires. If we're, if we're willing to understand and acknowledge that, it, it makes it a whole lot easier to fix it. You know, when you're driving down the road in the car that's moving, it's easy to dismiss those things, right? The check engine light comes on or we get some other kind of warning sign and we put those things off and it's easy to do that with matters of faith as well. There's, I've talked before about a, a guy that I listened to a podcast and he's an author as well wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, and that's the fundamental theme of the whole book. It's a book on leadership and how you can lead, and he's an ex-Navy SEAL, how you can lead in battle and in combat, but also he equates that to, to life in general and to business and all the things that we all do on a daily basis. And he, the, the underlying premise of all this is take ownership of all that in, in every way. You know, we're not, we're not a people that naturally want to do that. We're a people that want to make excuses. We want to find reasons for why things happen instead of wanting to be part of the solution. And as we talk about calibrating our faith this morning, let's understand that that starts with us. Me calibrating my faith has nothing to do with each of you. You may play a role in that in some way, and you should play a role in that in some way. But you can want it all you want, and if my face out of whack, it's not going to change until I want to do something about it. And, that, and I think that's what he's trying to get across to us here. So the cause of our conflict is ourselves. He goes on in verse 2 to say, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Isn't it evident here in the examples he uses? He says, look, you, you want things that, that are not yours, so that's why... People murder, and it sounds silly, right? But at the root of it, why do people murder? Because they want something that's not theirs, or they want to be in a situation that they can't be in, or they're jealous of somebody else being in that situation. And he lists all these various things. You covet, and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. What are the cause of your problems? You. You're the cause of your problems. And he says you, you don't ask for things of God, and then when you do ask, you're asking incorrectly, you're asking for the wrong reasons, so you can fulfill those same passions that we're talking about. We're the cause of our conflicts. So a quote by a man named Robert Jones, he wrote a book called Pursuing Peace. I kind of, it's one of those I kind of put on the list to read. I hadn't got to it. But he said, failure to please God, either our failure or the other person's failure in a relationship or whatever situation, or both, is the ultimate cause of all rational conflict. Bank on it. Whenever there is conflict, one or both parties are not pleasing God. And how true a statement that is. In any conflict, think about the reverse of that statement. In any conflict, you think about marriage. That's an easy example, right? We all have to deal with that at some point. But any relationship conflict that we experience, the opposite of that is if both people desire to please God, those conflicts end, and we resolve them quickly in almost all cases. 
And when there's a failure of that, it's because one person's not pleasing God. We care about our own passions and our own lust, and that's the cause of our conflict. He goes on in verse number three. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the second thing I want to point out as we think about getting our faith right, getting it centered and grounded and properly calibrated, is that friendship of the world is an enemy of that. It may be the biggest enemy of that. And I think in a broad sense, it may be the biggest enemy of Christianity today, especially here in the United States where we talk about personal freedoms and all the wealth and riches that exist in this country and all the stats that say you're in the top whatever percent of people in the world just by living in this country. And even times where we think we're broke or don't have something it's because of selfish passions. It's because we look at somebody else and say, they have something and I don't have that. You know, it's tough being me. I don't have all those fancy things that everybody else has. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges probably of our lifetime and uh, just by living in this country that we have to really keep grounded on understanding that. He uses the word enmity there. You, that word is a, it's a strong feeling. It's not, just a, it's not just a, hey, you know, we can't participate together. It's described as being actively opposed to something. If you have enmity with somebody, you're actively opposed to somebody. The enemy, as it's used further in the verse, that's the right word for it. It's an enemy. And so when we think about our desire for the things of the world, that makes us an enemy of God. It's the sin problem. It's the entire point of the Scriptures is being an enemy of God. It's the sin problem of man. And that's what he's talking about here. And so I don't know that we do enough justice to the idea of being separated from the things of the world. We probably should talk about it more, right? It's, it's elevating ourselves above God. It's when we make ourselves above God that the problems come in. And it's the sin problem in a nutshell. Think about all the laundry list of scriptures you could put on a sermon about this in the New Testament, right? You cannot serve God in mammon. You can't have one foot in, on both sides of the fence. And he talks about it, right? No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Luke eleven twenty three. whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's tons and tons and tons of scriptures about this idea. Why is that? You know, oftentimes we talk about, you know, we find a certain idea or a concept in the, in the scriptures, and there's not a lot of information about it. You know, maybe it's addressed in one or two places. Sometimes there's a singular instance of it, right? And then we try to build these ideas and arguments. From this one. It's more difficult. This one's not. This is not a difficult argument to build. The scriptures are completely clear on it. They're littered with the idea of you got to pick a side. That it, you can't have this idea of I want all the benefits of Christianity, but I kind of want to keep a foot in the other side as well. Yeah, we got to live in the world. The scriptures are clear on that, right? We got to interact with people. We got to talk but we can't love the world. We can't love the things that are in it. Whoever is not with me is against me. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. You ever thought about God yearning jealously over your Spirit? Those are kind of strange. That's a strange word for us. We don't use the word yearn in our everyday vocabulary. God desires our spirit to be with him. God desires our spirit to follow him and to desire him. He wants our thoughts and our intents. He wants us focused on him. And he yearns over that jealously. You know, we, 
staying with the, the marriage metaphor there, you think about the, the Scriptures talking about the, the church being the bride of Christ, right? It, the, the marriage metaphor is used in the Scriptures themselves to talk about it, and it's because it's easy for us to understand. Think about the spousal relationship. You don't want your spouse to want or desire somebody else. It just doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, God wants us to desire him. It makes no sense. If you've made a commitment to be married to God, why would you desire the things of the world? He goes on to say, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he talks about this this idea of conflict, right? We have conflict with our fellow man. We have conflict with God. All of this conflict exists, and what's the answer to it? He says he gives grace to the humble, and I think humility is where it starts, right? Again, you can, we could do an entire study on humility, and many have been done, but if we're not humble in our attitude toward all of this, we're not going to right the ship. We're not going to be willing to recalibrate. We're going to look at those things and think, I can put off balancing the tires another week. I can put that off for a while. It's just a little shaken when I'm going down the road. And we're not going to make the necessary changes that we need to. Humility is required to keep our faith focused and in the right spot. Think about God's interactions with Israel. You know, they, we talk about Israel a lot, right? And how they kind of went through these cycles of obedience and, and, and pleasing God and the desire to do that. And then they would, some event would happen or some time would go by and they would start to drift away. And then you had this period where they weren't serving God anymore and how they kind of had this yo-yo relationship with their service to God. Listen to how this is described in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 11. He says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. His criticism of Israel here was that they left him, that they turned their back on him. And not only did they take their back, turn their back on him, he said they, they also basically put their faith in themselves. And he compared it to these cisterns of water. If you look up what a cistern was, it's best I can tell it was basically a pot or a vase that was carved out of wood or cut, cut out of wood. And so he's liking it to this pot that they built saying, we're going to be able to hold all of our own water. We're going to build these things, but they're broken and they're leaky and they can't do a good job of it. And our face the same way. We think we're going to rely on ourselves we're going to keep a foot in the world and we're going to take care of things on our own. But the problem is we're broken and we're leaky and the face starts to slip out and it's not, it's not good. And he said, they forsook. I'm the fountain of living water. Think about a fountain. It doesn't ever empty, right? It just keeps recirculating water. What do you want your own pot for to fill when I'm here all along? And that was his challenge to him. He desires our spirit. And we should learn as we read about the people of Israel and to learn from these and we should be glad that he desires that. Verse number seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he describes two things that need to be done. Very simple, very simple in the message. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And you think about 
the idea of that being married to this conversation about not marrying ourselves to the world, right? And how Satan is the father of everything in the world that, we're, that is not good for, for Christians, right? And it's a simple concept. It's not easy to practice in everyday life, but it's simple to understand. Submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. And both of these things are critically important in calibrating our faith. The world belongs to the devil. Think about another group. I think about, when you think about worldliness, to me, that the two groups that really stuck out when I was thinking about the study, children of Israel and that whole in and out cycle with God. And then you think about the church at Corinth and the trouble that they had with worldliness and all the struggles they had. And, you know, we, we pick on the church at Corinth a lot with all the stuff that was going on there. But worldliness was a big problem. And they were lectured about it and they were, they were chastised about it. Listen to what they're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That'd be, hard. That'd be a hard message to receive, wouldn't it? And I wonder what he would say to us about that. All the stuff we get caught up in on a daily basis, we worry about our jobs and our schools and our friends and impressing people and our social status and how much money we have and how many possessions we can get and all the stuff that occupies our hearts and our minds on a daily basis. And I wonder if he would ask us where our thoughts are leading us or would he be worried about us, that it's going to lead us away. And I think the challenge with that is that, as we said, it's something that's not an overnight kind of a thing, right? Certain things start to happen, and it starts to chip away, and it starts to chip away. And before long, we're being led away from a pure devotion to Christ. God has a desire for our spirit. we got to understand that, and it has to mean something to us. Recognize that. So he kind of has this whole section about, you know, what's the source of your conflict, being attached to the world, God desiring you, and then he, and then he kind of goes into the, the help side of it, right? What can we do about it? How can, what can we take care of that? Verse number eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Drawing near to God and how important that is and what that means. You know, it's, sound, it's a little bit vague, right? Draw near to God. Okay, well, we should be close to God. What does that mean? Well, he tells us, purify your hearts, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Work on the sin problem. Work on where your heart is aligned. Work on the things that you're supposed to be working on. Work on all these things that we're talking about. Get out of the world. That's a big one. That's a big step. That may be the most critical step. Get where you don't love the things of the world. How many sin problems would that solve in and of itself if you didn't care about the things of the world? Drawing near to God. He calls them double-minded here. You know, as I was reading, I was thinking, well, double-minded about what? And I think it's, I think it's the, the worldly equation. It's the one foot on this side of the fence and one foot on that side. That's what double-minded is. It means I want my Christianity. I want all the benefits that come with being in the church and being a Christian, and I want God to save me. And I want him to forgive my sins. But I also want my money. 
And I want all of the pleasures that life has to offer. And I want to fulfill all my own selfish desires and lust. And I want to have both. And I still want God to take care of me. And he said, it doesn't work like that. You're double-minded in how you're thinking about that. You need humility. Draw near to God. Get rid of that thinking because it just doesn't work that way. And humility is the key to drawing near. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. Hebrews chapter 10 is a chapter we talk about a lot for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of good admonition in it. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, he who promised is faithful. Isn't that such a good verse? talks about what it means to draw near and how God is faithful if we'll do that, that he'll cleanse us of that sin. For a Christian to have one foot in the church and one, for the, one foot in the world just doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction fundamentally, and it just can't happen. And we need to have both of our feet on one side of the fence. There's a proper side to that, right? But it's what he said. If you're not with me, you're against me. you got to pick a side. You can't straddle the line. And I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest challenges we have in this is, is doing that. One of the biggest challenges to Christianity and people really being devoted to Christianity is doing just that, picking a side. And, you know, we think about all these plans we make in our lives. We talk about all the things that concern us and we worry about and the things that we deal with on a daily basis and what we want to do with the stuff. And, you know, we think about retirement and how we got to save for that. And is that on track? Or, uh-oh, somebody said something that nobody else liked and the stock market dropped 300 points today and I lost 20% of my 401K and all this stuff that we make plans for, Right? And it's all worldly. It's all meaningless at the end of the day. I'm not saying don't plan. Don't walk out of here, here saying Justin said cash in your 401k. I didn't say that. But it can't be the focus. It can't be the priority. You can't spend every waking hour worrying about where you're going to get all the money and what you're going to do with it because you're going to take it to your. You're not going to take it to your grave. And he talks about that as he goes on here. He says, "Come now." You who say today or tomorrow we will go in, into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is a verse I've heard all my life, and, but I've never thought about it in the context of the discussion that we're having today. Right? It's a, it's a perfect verse you can pull out and talk about, um, you know, the, how, how you should redeem the time. You should talk about how, you know, don't procrastinate and all the things that we talk about. This is one you can pull out of context and still be right on. We talk, we've been talking a lot lately about that, right? How context matters so much in, in these studies that we're doing. This is one you can pretty much pull out of context, do a sermon on, and still be right in the context of it. But in the context of all these things we're talking about, drawing near to God, getting away from the world, all this, I think it has a little deeper meaning. Right? Go get the tires balanced. If it's an alignment, get that done. If it's a little thing you need to tweak, tweak it. Take care of that today. He uses the, the uh, metaphor here of the mist or the vapors. The King James says your life is but a vapor, right? 
And you think about that, and it's such a powerful piece of imagery. And I can't, I can't go somewhere now and see steam or mist or something and not think of this verse. And I think that's one of the values of the imagery that's used in the Scriptures because then when you're in some other real-world situation just living your life, you see a pot of water on the stove at work, and it's steaming, and it makes you reflect on God. And I can't help but think about that. We went to Yellowstone on a family trip earlier in the summer, and you drive through that whole geyser basin, and of course, you see the steam coming off the geysers, but you might see it on the rivers or uh, other bodies of water or whatever. We got up real early one morning and drove through that valley, and it's just everywhere. The steam's coming up. But by 7, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., it's gone, right? It's, you get what you get from the geyser, but everywhere else it's gone. And that's really how life is. And I think anybody here that has some bit of age on them can start to understand the value of that metaphor. And you young folks, the earlier you understand and grasp this concept, the better you will be. Because you're going to stand here 20 years from now, you're going to be sitting in a church building, somebody's going to read this passage, and it's going to mean a little more to you in 20 years than it does today. And you're going to say, you know what, I've heard people say it all my life, and mom and dad say, it's one of those things you say, you realize you start to sound like your parents. Life is short, it goes by fast. What do you mean it goes by fast? You don't sit there from 8 to 5 at that job. That doesn't go by fast. It really does. And 10 years goes by and 20 years goes by in the blink of an eye. And before you know it, you're 44 and you're talking about things that happened 30 years ago. And were the things that happened 30 years ago things that helped you draw near to God? Or for the last 30 years, have I been focused on satisfying all my own desires and wants and selfishness and worrying about the things of the world and worrying about the retirement plan and working all the time so that I could have something in another 20 years that I may or may not ever see or that's going to be there and it's just going to turn into something my kids fight and quarrel about because they're worried over their own selfish desires. It's an endless cycle unless we break it. And that's what he said, your life is but a vapor. It's just here for a little time, and then it vanishes. So take care of things. There's an urgency in today. And I think the older you get, the more you see value in that. And somebody that's 20 years older than me probably laughing at me saying that, saying give it another 20 years and see how you feel about it. And that's just the way life works. But there is a point in there where you really start to get it. And you young people, take that to heart. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Think about God while you're young and have an opportunity. Don't worry about all these other distractions. And leave the things of the world. And there's a need to divorce the world and draw near to God, and the time to do it is now. There's not time for a delay, and there's urgency in it. And he's really trying to drive that point home here. There's too much at stake. So instead of saying, I'm going to do this in a year, and all these plans that we make, and all these elaborate things that we take care of. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. I can remember growing up, my mom used the term Lord willing a lot, and I just kind of thought it was just something she said, right? Well, Lord willing, we'll do this, or we'll get to do that, or whatever. With this scripture in mind now, I understand that a little more, and that's a mindset we ought to have. I don't know if it became kind of mechanical for her or not, if she just start, you know, if that was kind of her preface to everything that she said, but that's the right attitude. If the Lord wills, we'll do these things. But the, the key there is the Lord's will. The key is we should be focused on Him. 
if you do, if we do the right, if we do these things and do them right, it'll matter. As it is, in, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whosoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And again, there's another one that we pull out and use this verse a lot, right? Hey, maybe there's some obscure thing related to Christianity here that you know you should be doing, taking care of this, and if you don't do it, to you it's sin. And he's saying here, all these things we're talking about, let's put those together. And, if we, and, and those are the things that we need to be doing. And if we do those, if you know you should be doing those things, you know God should be the focus in your life. You know that you shouldn't be worrying about worldly things. You know you should draw near to Him. And the culmination of all that is it's sinful to not do it. And He's really challenging us here to do it. We should leave the world behind. We should understand that He's yearning after our spirit. He has a strong desire for us to be there, and He's jealous about that. And draw near to Him, and we should do it today. We should do it with a sense of urgency. We should recalibrate or calibrate our lives to have the proper kind of faith. Where's your faith at today? If you remember back to our first study when we talked about reflecting in the mirror of the Scriptures and what we do, what we do with that information. What do you do with that information? What do you do when you're challenged by something that you know you need to make a change on? That something may be wrong in your life, something you need to correct, something you need to repent of and change. What do you do with that? Where is your faith at? Is it drifting a little bit to the right? Is the steering wheel shaking at the higher speeds of life when things get crazy? The tires aren't balanced and things start to get a little rough and you feel it when the pressures of life are on? Is there some other kind of larger mechanical fundamental problem that you need to take care of? Think about calibrating your faith and think about doing it the way that he's asked us to. Be mindful that God wants your spirit. Be mindful that the right way to serve Christ is by calibrating your life, like Paul told the Corinthians. He worried about them drifting away from that. Let's don't do that. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. If there's anything the church can do this morning to help you, if you have a, if you have a problem with where your faith is at, let's use this time to recalibrate it, and we would be happy to help you with that. We'd be happy to pray for you and help you with that. And there's many men and women in this room that are willing to participate in that. If you have any need that the church can take care of, please come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing the cementation song.